I'd like for you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, please find that and follow with me. This passage uh, ought to be the required reading for the Harvard and Stanford business schools, but it won't, it won't be. Uh, some of you who have had any courses in college in business or marketing probably are familiar with Peter Drucker's classic book, 839 pages of, of uh, marketing, entitled, strangely enough, Marketing, or Management, really. It ought to have one chapter in that book, at least, on an exposition of this passage, but it'll never happen. This a portion of Scripture should appear in, the, every, in every edition of the Wall Street Journal, but don't waste your time tomorrow getting a Wall Street Journal and looking for this passage, because it'll never be there. Do you, do you know any young, aspiring uh, junior executives, would-be CEOs, uh, presidents of big corporations, you know, with big dreams and aspirations? Every year, you ought to send them a birthday card with this scripture passage written in it, but you want. You know those warnings that appear on um, cigarette packages of cigarettes? It says, warning. The Surgeon General advises that cigarette smoking may be dangerous, hazardous to your health. It might be good to have this passage of Scripture at the bottom of the diploma of everybody with a degree in, in marketing or management. Warning, God has decreed that success may be lethal. But that'll never happen. Now Solomon doesn't have in mind in this passage the, the little guys like most of us who are, you know, just kind of making out a normal uh, living, kind of, you know, scraping out uh, enough to pay the bills. He's not thinking here about young men who are content, you know, as long as the bills are paid and they have enough, you know, to kind of get by. Solomon is writing in this passage to the you know, high rollers, the prime movers, the movers and the shakers, and the top guns. And he takes off his rosy glasses and he puts on his realistic glasses and he, and he says, I'm going to tell you the way it really is. I'm going to tell you the truth. You have these grandiose dreams of, you know, if I could just have enough money to have two cars and a yacht, you know, and didn't have to work, I could travel, and I'd have it made. Let me tell you the way it really is. And this is the way it really is, and you know it's true. And he looks around, and he sees three categories of life, three categories of living. And that's how we're going to divide this tonight, in the three categories of living, of life. And the first, in, there's, a, there's an action, and there's a corresponding reaction in these categories. You'll see that in your outline. 
And the first category of life he, he sees is this, is the oppression, the oppressor, and the oppressed. An oppressive condition. Verses 1 through 3, listen. Then I looked again at all the facts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living, who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. And he looked around and he saw the prime movers, the shakers, the top guns, the people who have the money and the power and the influence. And he saw them in control of others. And he saw the tears of the oppressed and no one to comfort them. I don't know whether you take the Dallas Morning News or not, but this past week there was this series of articles about uh, the projects in South Dallas and the oppressed. And these slums, these projects, rodent-infested, cockroach-infested, disease-infested projects that have run-down shambles where crack houses are predominant and people afraid to open their doors at night. And every day they'd have these pictures of the oppressed, these black folks staring at the cameras with this look of hopelessness in their faces. I saw the tears of the oppressed and there was no one to comfort them. And I really did think this as I read those articles. Wouldn't it be great if you had enough money to help those poor people, to do something that would kind of relieve their oppression, but we probably wouldn't. Every survey indicates that the people on the highest strata of income, highest level of, of wealth, give less than those who are at the lowest level. And he looks at the oppression around him and he says, I congratulate the dead. It's better off to be dead than to have to see this and to live through it. And you've heard that Negro spiritual sung many times. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And when you hear that, you think of these people in the projects or perhaps some slave woman singing that from her soul. And as she sings it, you can see her wiping the tear from, their, from her eyes. And you think to yourself, it would be better to be dead than to have to live like that. And to the oppressor, he says, what are you going to do with your wealth and your money and your power and your influence? Are you a giver or are you a taker? Do you, do you use this tremendous wealth that you have to wield influence or to take it away? And then he makes one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture. In verse 3 he says, Both to the oppressor and to the oppressed, he says, Better is the person who has never lived than you. Well, that's a cheery word for a cold, dreary night. And he looks around and he sees the second category of life. He sees those who have competitive determination. Verses 4 through 6. And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done 
is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. And he sees this, that some believe that the accomplishment of their goal is in competitive determination, competition. And it's not this friendly competition that, that is the part of the American dream. It's this ruthless rivalry. And this rivalry is a kind of a one-on-one -on -one that makes man fight and claw to, to, to top out another in this maddening craze to outdo one another. It causes one to say, I'm not the type to take second seat, to, take, to play second fiddle. I'm not comfortable until I'm on, type, on top. That's what gives me identity. And there is this one-on-one -on -one ruthless rivalry that's so much a part of this life. Chuck Swindoll tells about the man who, in his pursuit to be number one, drove a wedge between himself and his family, alienated them. Had one son that wouldn't even speak to him. Had another son in trouble. His wife, threatening to divorce him, came to his pastor and said, Can you tell me how to go back and build, up, build my home again and win my family again? I'd just like to go back and start over. He was the perfect example of the system. James Barry has an interesting play called The Will. It's about a young couple that goes to, the, to their lawyer just after they've been married to set up their will. The man's name is Philip Ross and he's inherited a great amount of money. And his, he and his new bride are very much in love and he wants to have his, work, his will write, read in one sentence that all, of he, all that he has goes to his wife. She says, no honey, we need to remember your cousins. And how about that convalescent home? We need to leave some money for them. Twenty years later, they're back in the lawyer's office. He's taken the money he's had, invested it wisely. He's extremely wealthy, and they want to be sure that everything's just right in their will. He wants to leave some money to his cousin. She'll have no part of it. Can you, can you see it? They all, they're hangling and arguing about what, and each of them refers to it as my money. And they argue bitterly in the, in the lawyer's office and the convalescent home is forgotten and finally they come to some kind of agreement. Twenty years they're back. He's now 65. She's dead. And he didn't want to leave any to his children because he didn't think they were worthy of it. They're, they're troublemakers. He don't know how to, where to leave his money, this wealth that he's acquired. And so he paces up and down in the lawyer's office saying, I want to leave, I want to leave. And finally he says, with an oath, here's a list of a half a dozen men I've beaten to get my money. Leave it all to them with my curses. There is this ruthless rivalry that goes on and one believes that the way he accomplishes his dream is to get on top, get on top. Perfect illustration of the system. And there is a reaction to it. He says, one hand, look, look at the contrast between the hand and the fist, the driving fist, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor 
and a striving after the wind. And the reaction to this competitive determination is burnout. I looked everywhere I could find for some, some definition of burnout. I found one. The dictionary defines burnout as burning until the fuel is exhausted and the fire ceases. Isn't that descriptive? A more comprehensive definition, he says, is, not, is that burnout is a cluster of physical, emotional, and mental exhaustion reactions. It is the result of constant or repeated emotional arousal associated with intense involvement with people over long periods of time. Physical exhaustion means that there is a loss of energy, chronic fatigue, weakness, weariness. Emotional exhaustion involves feelings of depression, hopelessness, and helplessness, usually accompanied by a loss of coping skills. Often feelings of happiness are replaced by loneliness and discouragement. Mental exhaustion leads to negative attitudes toward work, life, and self. This in turn leads to negative attitudes toward others and feelings of inadequacy, inferiority, and incompetence. Burnout is a physiological and psychological reaction to long periods of stress. Stress is a natural ingredient of everyday life, but in and of itself will not cause burnout. It is unrelieved stress that results in burnout. Competitive determination results in burnout. Uh, yesterday's newspaper told about predictions of what it's going to be like in the 1990s. There was an interesting observation there. It says that in the 1990s we're going to have this, these baby boomers who are going to be 40-ish and in the midlife crisis. Now that's going to be a blessing. After the burnout comes the midlife crisis. Times of intense evaluation when when frightening and disturbing thoughts surge through the mind, posing questions like this, why am I here? And why and who am I? And why was I born? Terrifying thoughts that can't be repeated even to those closest to us. The reaction of, deter of competitive determination. Conway's marvelous book, Man in Midlife Crisis, says it. The hair starts falling out. We do everything we can to protect every strand. Sound familiar? And, and he says that you begin to feel exhaustion even on an escalator. Oh, yeah. And, and he said, when, when, you get to the, when you get to the midlife crisis, you, you know you're in the midlife crisis when the stewardess comes down the aisle of the plane, looks at you and said, coffee? tea or milk of magnesia. It said, the cells in the face go south for the winter. And you're not satisfied in your work any longer, but you can't get out of it. The result of competitive determination. And then he looks around and he sees that third category. And, and notice in verses 7 and 8, look at this. Notice that the first group, in the first category, there was a group of people a group of wealthy people and a group of oppressed people, oppressing and oppressing and the oppressed. In the second group, he sees two people. 
in this one-on-one rivalry of competition, ruthless. But when he comes to the third category, it's one lonely man. For as you climb the ladder and ascend to the top, you have less and less personal contact. Look at this. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun, and there was a certain man without a dependent. Look at that, without a dependent having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. And he sees this one man here who has no dependence, and he's independently wealthy. And you're expecting him to say, Since I don't have a lot of people depending on me and I've got enough, I'll just take it easy and enjoy life. But he doesn't. There's no end to his labor. His eyes are never satisfied with what he has. This guy's a workaholic. And he never says to himself, never stops to ask, why am I knocking myself out? For he wants you to believe that that the goal of the American dream is work, work, work. And if I get to the top, they'll call me sir. They may call me Mr. President. And in my office, I'll have me a sofa, you know. And people will be asking for my time and for my counsel and for my advice. And Solomon says, it won't satisfy. And you're to ask yourself, why am I doing all of this? Why am I fighting, struggling to get to the top rung when I'm not satisfied on the rung I'm on? And we need a story for an illustration. Surely there must be a story here for some to illustrate this. Well, let's ask this, the greatest storyteller of all. Jesus is the greatest storyteller, and he has a marvelous illustration of this man. I want you to turn to the 12th chapter of Luke. 12th chapter of Luke. And Jesus is going to give us an illustration of this guy he sees in this third category. And there's a warning, there's a parable, and there's an analogy. I'm just going to read it and let you put it in. Here's the warning. Chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, that is the people around who were listening to his discussion with this man, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Now, greed has many forms. Be on your guard, be aware, be aware. This is the warning against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. This is the warning. Life does not consist in possessions. Beware of every form of greed. Now this is the parable. The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my my crops? And he said this, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain, all my goods. Notice the emphasis on the I and the my. 
And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? And here's the analogy. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And God's, God enters into the very office where the man is planning how he's going to get to the top. Now there are two haunting questions. With these questions I'm through. Listen carefully to the questions. Because every person in this auditorium tonight and everybody watching on television, everybody has to answer this question, these questions. Number one, are you telling yourself the truth about possessions? Are you telling yourself the truth about possessions? Now I want to spend a little time tonight talking to guys like me. I'll talk to myself and you can listen in. Because uh, most of us would say, well, listen, I'm not in this category. I wish I were, you know, of the movers and the shakers and the, and the high to rollers and the top guns. I'll tell you what, most of us are not telling the, ourselves the truth about our possessions. We're not honest with ourselves and we're not honest with God about them. Isn't it true? that things are more important to us than God. And isn't it true that we worship at the altar of our possessions? And isn't it true that we're not honest in our giving? We're not tithers. Most of us are not. We don't have our possessions, they have us. Isn't that the truth? And isn't it true that down deep inside we have a secret bitterness and a secret resentment for those who are successful and we're not? Isn't it true that we're not telling the truth about our possessions? Second question. Are you hearing God's warning about priorities? Are you hearing God's warning about priorities? Have you heard God say that He'll have no other gods before Him? And have you heard God say that anything that takes priority over Him is an idol? Are you hearing God's warning about priorities? In Europe, called Yusuf. His name was Yusuf. He was called the Terrible Turk. He was a 350-pound wrestler. Some of you wrestling buffs that watch it on Channel 4. You may have known of him, heard of him. Yusuf was a 350-pound terror, the terrible Turk. In America, Strangler Lewis was the champion. 
and Strangler Lewis threw down the gauntlet, challenged the terrible Turk to a winner-take-all wrestling match in America. And the terrible Turk came to America to wrestle Strangler Lewis. Now Strangler Lewis had this stranglehold. That was his famous hold. And he'd get his opponents around the neck and squeeze and cut off the circulation and they'd lose consciousness. And he thought, well, I'll just get the terrible Turk in my famous strangler hold and put him out. Get him around the neck. You know, problem was the terrible Turk didn't have a neck. <laughs> kind of hard to squeeze him around the neck when he didn't have one. So the terrible Turk won. And he demanded that he get his $5,000 prize in gold. He wanted his payment in gold. And he put it in a, in a, in a money belt around this huge equator you know, of, a, of a waste and headed home. His ship sank in the Atlantic. And he had this, uh, some of you nodding your head, you've heard of the terrible Turk. He, he had this money belt around him. He went down like an anvil, never to be heard of again. Won the, he lost the last great match and went to the great ring in the sky, I guess. And you, you, you're saying, I got a lot more class than that. I don't wear my money around my belt, my equator. I got it stashed away. And when I need it, I'll get it. You won't need it when you die. Possessions ought to satisfy, but they won't. They ought to, but they won't. They ought to, as much as it costs us, and much labor and sweat, it ought, they ought to satisfy, but they won't. Priorities ought to come easy, but they never will. It ought to be easy to set priorities and keep them. I mean, we ought to know what's the most important things. And it ought to be that that would be the easiest thing to do, the most important things. Priorities ought to come easy, but they never will. And this book, as dismal as it is to listen to, and as hard and dismal as it is to preach, always calls us back to the basics always calls us back to priorities and reminds us that you can have a money belt full and go down like an animal. And it's all vanity and a striving after the wind. Now there are some things tonight this text would have us know that are the most important things in life. And those are the things we ought to give priority. Let's pray. God, as we look around, we too see the oppressed, the tears of the oppressed and there's no one to comfort them. And we go on making our money 
and making our way. And we look around us and we see this competitive determination that causes us to turn against our neighbor and forget to love. Most of all, Father, we look, we turn, we see that all alone, when it's just one man and his God, that most of us are stacking it up in barns, doing our best to take care of our possessions and our time, interested in the big eye. God, help us to tell the truth about our possessions and help us to hear the warning concerning priorities. I pray for this invitation, those decisions that need to be made, because I pray in Jesus' name. I'd like to give you an opportunity tonight to respond to God and His call. There are three invitations. An invitation for you to come and receive Christ as your personal Savior. The Christian life begins with our reception of the Holy Spirit that comes about by the hearing with faith. There may be some who need to come, as many came this morning in the service, and what a wonderful response to come and place their life here in the church. You want to join the church. Or maybe tonight there's just some who need to come and say, I've not been putting first things first. I want to be honest about that. And you'll just need to come and deal with God as you, you know, as, as only you can, one-on-one -on -one with Him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.